I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. Last week we entered into a new section of the books of Kings. You might call it the days of Elijah, right? The days of Elijah. Because right now, we aren't learning about all the kings of the north and the south. We've already met 13 of them as the book has progressed. Most of them thumbs down, guys. But now, in this section, we're concentrating just on the northern kingdom of Israel and not so much on its no good, very bad, wicked king, Ahab, as on the prophet who has burst onto the scene and fired this first salvo in the war against Baal. He said, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Remember that? When Elijah walked into the throne room and said that? The Lord was, as we said last week, turning off the faucet. Because King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel had considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and began to serve Baal and worship him, setting up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So Elijah declared that it was not going to rain. Now remember, that's a direct attack against the glory of Baal. Because supposedly Baal was the god of rain, the god of fertility, of successful crops. And there was no fertility. There were no successful crops, get this, for three years. Just think about that. Some of you are wondering if Elijah's visited our area recently, right? We've gone, what, three weeks without any real rain here to speak of? And how dry it is. The good side is that you don't have to mow, right? The bad side is the grass is all brown and dying. Imagine that going on three years. That whole time, Elijah is hiding out from Ahab and Jezebel. They have a contract out on him and any other of the prophets of Yahweh. Last week we saw how the Lord provided for Elijah from unlikely sources while he was hiding out. Unlikely sources like dirty ravens and Gentile widows. Three years. Three years the widow's flour and the widow's oil didn't run out. They were new every morning. And Elijah lies low under the radar. He actually lives in pagan territory. He lives in Sidon, in Baal territory. Right? They've moved, they've imported Baal into, into the northern kingdom of Israel. Elijah has exported himself to go live in Baalsville. That's where he's hiding out. But now, 1 Kings 18, the Lord has a new mission for Elijah. He's going to send some rain. Chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Let's pray together. W-I-S-D-O-M. Lord, we need it. Left to our own self, we're like dry brown grass. And we need the watering, the the refreshment of the Word of God to come and rain on us. 
Would you do that, Lord? Would you speak to us through your word? It's a glorious passage of Scripture. Help us to get it, Lord, to see it with new eyes and with the eyes, with hearts full of faith to believe this message in your holy word. We need it. We need it. We want to love it, learn it, live it, read it. W-I-S-D-O-M. It's in your word that we find it. We need your wisdom, Lord, today. Rain on us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to tell you the title of this sermon now. And after you hear the title, you'll know the whole point of the story. So you can go home after you hear the title. Okay? Now, I recommend sticking around to see how it plays out. And if you already know the story, which probably most of you do, it's one of the only stories most of all of us know from the books of Kings. If you know this story already, I encourage you to pretend that you don't. Try to read it and listen to it verse by verse as if you don't know what's going to happen at the end. Because it's a doozy. Okay, are you ready for the title? It's a doozy too. Are you ready? You guys are the quietest bunch this week. I'm like, shout kids. Yay. Okay. Are you ready to hear the title? Here we go. Okay. Oh. There it is. The Lord is... God. Okay, it doesn't sound that exciting, but it is. This is one of the most important sentences in the whole history of sentences. The Lord, Yahweh, is God. Yahweh is God. Now, I guess, I, I can guess that everyone here already believes that. Or else, why would you come to church today? Maybe somebody dragged you. Or maybe you're checking all of this out. If so, I'm glad you're here. But most already know this fact. The Lord is God. But it's strangely enough, easy to forget. It's actually easy to ignore. That's what had happened in Israel. The whole northern kingdom had turned to false worship, even Baal worship. And the Lord will not stand for that. Yahweh must demonstrate that He is God alone. So He shut off the rain. And now He's told Elijah that He's going to turn it back on again, but He wants credit for that. He doesn't want Baal, the supposed rain god, to get credit for the merciful return of the rain. So he calls a press conference. Verse verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. By now that, that should set off bells, right? Whenever you see the word of Yahweh came to the prophet, something's going to happen. And it's going to happen because the Lord said it. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. 
Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys, maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. Now stop there for just one second. This gives us a little picture, snapshot, of what these three years have been like. There are still followers of Yahweh, but they have had to be sneaky. Even this guy in charge of the palace, Obadiah, not the prophet, is a closet follower of Yahweh and has been hiding a hundred Yahwist prophets and supplying them with food and water. That's big. But Ahab doesn't care about these prophets. He doesn't mind them dying at the hands of his wife and her assassins. What he really cares about is his livestock. You can tell where Ahab's priorities are. And everything around him is dying. Baal is not coming through. So he sends Obadiah out and they separate and they scour the countryside looking for water. But instead of water, Obadiah finds a prophet. Verse 7. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Where have you been for three years? Right? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Gulp, said Obadiah. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives. Anybody, did a bell go off for anybody from last week's sermon? That was the title. That phrase should make a little bell go off in your head every time you hear it. The Lord lives. There is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? Obadiah is scared. He's not scared of telling the truth. He's scared that Elijah may not stick around, so it seems like he's been lying. Verse 12. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master alone and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. You see what it's been like to live in Israel for the last three years? You make the wrong step, there goes your head. You say the wrong thing at the wrong time, even though you're being faithful to the Lord, you die. Verse 15, Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, ding, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Yes, I'm coming, and you're really going to see something now. 
So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah said. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. You see this face-off here? This is an epic face-off. You've got the king of Israel. You've got the prophet of the Lord, right? And they're meeting, right? I, in my mind, there's like archers trained in every direction kind of a thing, you know? It's just one of those classic moments. And what does Ahab lead off with? You're the problem. Look at the death and destruction everywhere around you, Elijah. Israel is dying of thirst, and it's all your fault. But Elijah says, doesn't stick to me. I didn't bring this trouble on Israel. You did. You brought in Baal. And this is what happens when you serve a dead God. People die. That's one of the major messages in the books of Kings. When you worship false gods, there's trouble and cursing and danger and death. Idolatry hurts people. But the Lord lives. The Lord is God. And He wants to show you this. Verse 19. Now summon... Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. It's time for a showdown. Now you probably know this story, okay? But pretend that you don't. You know how it ends. But humor me for just a few minutes and pretend that you're not sure where this is going. Mount Carmel was apparently Baal territory at this point. So there was home court advantage to the followers of Baal. Okay? And at this location, Elijah stands up in front of everybody, all by himself. And all these prophets and all these Israelites, and Elijah calls, calls them out. He says, verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. But the people said nothing. Here's point number one this morning of three. Three points of application. Number one, choose to follow Him alone. That's that's what he says, right? If the Lord is God, then choose to follow Him alone. It's basic stuff. Elijah really gets in their faces, doesn't he? How long will you waver between two opinions? That word waver means to hobble or limp, right? Kind of this, kind of this going around. Which, 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 which way are you going over there, right? Which way are you going over there? That's what he's saying. Some of your versions say halt. Why are you, you going to halt between the two opinions? You're falling all over the place here. We're going to see that word in just a few more minutes again. You know, it's the craziest thing about this contest. It shouldn't be happening. This is Israel. They should have decided who was God a long time ago. 
1 Kings 18 is not the time to be deciding if Yahweh is God. And even here they won't say anything. He's saying, what is wrong with you? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. Simple math. Our Lord Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to choose. Wade Nolan, our wild game dinner speaker back in February, said that a lot of guys like to hang around on the fence and eventually decide whether or not to follow Jesus. But Wade says, the truth is, there is no fence. Right? There's no fence. If the Lord is God, then follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. Be my guest. Now I'm guessing that this is not a hard choice for anyone here today. Anyone here tempted to follow Baal with your life? If so, meet me in my office after church today. We've got some talking to do. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a problem with idolatry. The Apostle John ended his first New Testament letter with these words, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And I doubt that he meant ones made of wood, iron, and stone. What is like Baal for you? If you were to say, okay, Baal equals this in my life, what is it? It's probably not Baal. What false gods are you tempted to worship, to give allegiance to, to trust in, to ask to save you, to find your satisfaction in, that you put, you're tempted to put first in your life? Baal may not be tempting, but I'm guessing there's a false deity or two that is actually appealing. I'll give you two of mine this morning. They're ones I've said before. They, they're no surprise. In fact, you probably know mine better than I do because our idols are often more obvious to others than they are to ourselves. I tend to worship the gods of popularity and comfort. I love to be liked and approved of by others. That Facebook like button is like a drug for me. Right? I always talk about like, thanks, like, oh good, thank you, like, like. And I have an extra plate addiction. Right? I've talked about that before. My gluttony gluttony tends to come not from just enjoying the pleasure of eating too much, but by looking for satisfaction and comfort in the act of eating. And when you put the two together, those two idols, getting approval for how much I eat, then I can really get into trouble. Now there's nothing wrong with liking to be liked or enjoying comfort. Those are both good things. But good things can become God things when we allow them to take a place they do not deserve in our lives. And even though I'm a declared follower of the Lord, I can be tempted to waver between the two. Elijah says, no Matt, choose to follow the Lord alone. Or as he told Moses to write down, you shall have no other gods before me. Decide. And then act. That's what follow means, right? He says follow Him. It means to decide and then act. 
Don't just say you believe in God. Live it. You can't serve two masters. Stop trying. Serve the one. Does that make sense? Now this applies to other religions as well. Of course it does. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Allah is God, follow Him. Can't do both. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if the God of the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or the Hindus or whatever is God, then follow them. But you've got to choose. There is no fence. What is Baal like for you? What is like Baal for you? Choose to follow Yahweh alone. So Elijah sets up this famous contest. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He's God. What do you say? Then all the people said, what you say is good. They like it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, by the way, have I mentioned that Baal was the God of lightning? He's the storm God, right? So he is the one who sends fire from heaven. They've seen lightning before. So you can see why they like it. Hey, it's been three years since anything happened. What's the chances? And there's more of us than there are of him, right? There's 450 of us and there's just one of him. So who goes first, right? Flip the coin. Right? Elijah declines the first possession. Verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. You go ahead. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. No tricks here. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. As we say these days, crickets, right? Nothing. Three hours, four hours, however long it was, from morning till noon. And they danced around the altar they had made. Now, I think that that word dance, I forgot to look it up again, is that same word for hobble or halt, okay? So they're kind of doing this little dance around their altar, right? They're, they're living it out right in front of them. And they start to get worried that their God isn't going to show up. The shot clock is ticking down. And their God is silent. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to trash talk. That's not what it says. It says taunt, but you know what it is. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Oh, Baal. Time to wake up. I love it when Elijah gets to trash talking. 
That's what we have to do with idols. Get out your megaphone, guys. Try that line again. What do you mean nobody's home? Maybe Baal is busy. He's occupied, right? Do you think of that? You know, he might be sleeping. Now catch this. Why doesn't Baal respond? Why doesn't Baal respond? He's not there. Because Baal's not real. In the words of last week's message, Baal does not live. They don't get a busy signal when they call. It just rings and rings and rings. There's nobody home. Because Baal is not God. Yahweh is God. I almost titled last week's message and this week's message and the next message, The Battle of Baal, right? But there is no contest. The team doesn't show up. There's a battle of Baal worship. There's a battle of Baalism. But Baal doesn't put up any fight because he ain't real. And the same thing is true of all the other religions in the world. And all of the counterfeit gods that you and I are tempted to give some portion of our lives to. Popularity or comfort, or money or possessions or pleasure, or politics or sports or some other person. In the end, they do not show up. They are not God. Baal is not God. But you'd have a hard time convincing these people. Oh, they try so hard. They do whatever they think it will take to get their God's attention. That's religion for you. Beware of this kind of religion. Verse 28, So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Please, Baal, please, we'll give you our blood. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But here's the key line. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's the reward for idolatry. And now we see the contrast with Elijah's God. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. Hello. up. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which, is, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Isn't this dramatic? You can kind of hear that, the music. You know, as the, this, is the, this is the moment. The music starts, he starts building this altar, he takes twelve stones. He reminds them, they shouldn't be two nations, ten up here and two down there. Twelve tribes. The whole people of God should be unified together in one nation. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, okay, let's make it harder. Right? That's what he says. He says, this isn't hard enough. Let's make it harder. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. So they do it. 
He says, do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. How many jars is that, by the way? Four jars? Three times? It's another 12, right? One unified nation under Yahweh. That's what we're supposed to be. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. There's this moat of water all over this wet sacrifice. You got the picture? What's the big question in your mind? Where'd they get all this water? There's been a drought for like three years. And Elijah wants to pour water over this sacrifice? So they get this water from somewhere, maybe from the Mediterranean. It never runs dry or hasn't yet. They import this water. They pour it over the sacrifice. And there is no way on earth that fire could break out on its own. There's no tricks here. He doesn't have like a little incendiary device planted underneath. Right? It's all drenched. And the priests of Baal are limping around, exhausted and bleeding. And then verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that You are God in Israel and that I am Your servant and have done all these things at Your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know that You, O Lord, are God and that You're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also lick up the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Boom! They get the point, don't they? Yahweh is God. And no one else is. You know, I never noticed the rocks and the soil before today. I always thought that they were scorched. And that might be what it means. But I was amazed. I was always amazed that the water was licked up. It's just dry. But if I'm reading it right, the rocks and the soil burned up too. My dad has a farmer friend named Ronnie who has a saying, dirt don't burn, right? Dirt don't burn. That's one of our sayings around the house. Dirt don't burn. Verse 38 again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, which is totally amazing. The wood, there goes that altar. The stones and the soil. There goes that altar. There goes that soil. And also licked up the water in the trench. That was some really hot fire from heaven. The Lord is God. And that has some consequences. Verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. They were the true troublers of Israel. And they will not trouble Israel any longer. The Lord is God. Choose to follow Him alone. Number two, choose to pray to him alone. Did you notice how calm and collected Elijah was when he prayed? No slashing himself with a razor blade. No dancing around trying to get 
God's attention. Hey, I'm over here, I'm over here. He prayed earnestly and passionately. But there was no jumping around and cutting himself and limping and hobbling and putting on a big show. He just prayed a simple heartfelt felt prayer and the fire fell. Why? Because the Lord is God. So now it's time for him to pray that something else fall from the heavens. Rain. Three years and no rain because of the prayers of Elijah? It's time to pray again. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. I think this means it's time for Ahab to make a decision. King Ahab now has a chance here to make everything right. You notice he wasn't wasn't killed at this point. He has a chance to turn the nation back to Yahweh. He's told to eat and drink and watch and see what the Lord is going to do. And Elijah prays, and he prays, and he really prays. He's praying based on the promise from verse 1 and what Solomon said back in chapter 8, that there will be rain. He knows that the Lord is God, so he prays a big prayer request. He prays for rain, and then he watches to see. Verse 43. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said. Go back. Sometimes we have to pray a lot. It doesn't mean God isn't answering. It isn't always like those prophets prophets of Baal. We take it to the Lord. We trust Him. Go back, he says. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Ah. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Faster than the chariot. Now that's as far as we're going to read today. We're not going to find out what happens with Ahab. He's got the flash out in front of him. Maybe Elijah is a forerunner and Ahab is going to repent and lead the nation into revival. We don't know yet. But we know one thing. It's raining. And it's raining and it's raining and it's raining. Why? Because Elijah prayed. And he prayed not just to any old deity, but to Yahweh. The Lord. He is God. That's the point that the the Apostle James makes in his letter. Chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 of James. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Why? Because the man is so special? No, James goes on to say, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Why is the prayer of a righteous person powerful and effective? Because the Lord is God. How's your prayer life? Don't forget that you're praying to the God of fire and of rain. You're praying to the same God that Elijah was. 
The Bible says we're just like Elijah. We're just people. You say, oh, I couldn't pray like Elijah. That's the very point James makes. You can pray like Elijah. Just pray to the God of Elijah. We know Yahweh. So bring your big prayer requests to Him. There's a song by John Newton that very few people know. It's not like Amazing Grace, like everybody knows. I think this one needs to come back. It's called, Thou Art Coming to a King. Listen to this verse. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. The Lord is God. Choose to pray to him alone. And number three, choose to confess him alone. I know we don't have time to develop this thought. But what I want to leave ringing in our ears is the cry of verse 39. When all the people saw this with their own two eyes, when they got it, they fell prostrate on the ground and they cried, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And that needs to be our confession as well. Yahweh is God. And He is our God. And Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. When Jesus was born, it wasn't just fire and rain that came down. The Lord Himself came down and gave us the perfect sacrifice. Not just a bull on an altar, but a Savior on a cross. And then a risen Savior, an exalted Savior, and a one day a returning Savior. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Is that your confession? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so many people need to hear it all around the world. The Lord, He is God. Jesus, He is the Lord. 